Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. We're so happy that you're joining us from around the world. We're here in my home office in the southern end of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Amish country. <laughs> yes. In fact, we just had an, a new Amish neighbor buy the property behind us. Mm, yeah. It was for years uh, a horse farm, um, meaning there were like, you know, horse people. How, <laughs> how would you describe horse people, Wendy? What, what's the what's the name of the the like equestrian dressage? Just dressage. That's yeah. what I was. Yeah, they they had the jumps back there and all that stuff, and they sold their farm to an Amish family. So we have new Amish neighbors. And I was just before we came into my office, I was looking out, and they were drawing with their horses the uh, you know kind of I don't know tractor type. It's not a tractor because it's drawn by horses, but. What am I trying to say? I think they're they're harvesting hay or something. Yeah. yeah. So it's but a harvester. A harvester. That's it. <laughs> they're pulling a harvester with with their team of horses right. back there as we speak. Right. So what can you tell us about the TOB Institute right now? TOB Institute. We have a Theology of the Body Level 1 course online coming up in September. If you have not yet treated yourself to Theology of the Body Level 1, which is our introductory kind of flagship offering here at the TOB Institute. Please prayerfully consider. You will not regret it. It will take you to a whole new depth of understanding of yourself, of your longings, of your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your pains, your sorrows, your sufferings, and it will all come into perspective in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus in a way that you just can't imagine until you've taken the course. Mm. So consider truly taking this online course. If finances are a problem, we have a scholarship program. So please, please do not let money get in the way of taking this course. We never, ever want money to be an obstacle to people being exposed to this teaching. And the reason I really want you to consider taking TOB1 online in September the real reason is coming out now. Well, it's not the real. The real reason is because I want our listeners to be enriched by the great gift of John Paul II's teaching. I was teasing. But one of the reasons is if you take it online in September, then you can come to TOB2 in person in October. This is true. So TOB2 has a prerequisite. It's TOB1. That's right. Yeah. So there you go. I'm just holding it out to you. I know there are listeners out there who are meant to do that. TOB1 in September, TOB2 in October. Pray about it. Think about it. Mm. And if you're feeling that little Holy Spirit nudge, go for it. <laughs> Shall I give you a question from a patron? Yes. This is from a patron named Mary. Hello, Mary. Thank you, Mary, for being a patron of our work. We can't do it without people like you who see the importance of what we're doing and support us. Thank you so much. Mary says, thank you so much for all you and Wendy have done to bring Theology of the Body to the world. It's had a profound impact in my life. Praise God. My question has to do with placing our intentions in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
I believe it was in your keynote talk from the TOB Institute virtual conference, which was amazing, by the way. I was wondering if you could help me with this thought and concept of being in Mary's womb. Recently, I was getting my fingerprints taken for a new teaching job and marveled out loud to the lady taking my fingerprints how amazing it was that everyone's fingerprints are different. She said that it shows how everyone moves differently. I asked her to clarify what she meant, and she said that our fingerprints are formed by our movements and touching our mother's womb while we're growing inside of our mothers. Never heard that. Have you ever heard that? No. That's very interesting. I thought that was a super cool idea, but frankly, I didn't believe her. Yeah, I'm wondering if I believe her too. (laughs) And I researched it a little bit online. It turns out it is true. And if that is true for us then that is also how Jesus's fingerprints were formed. Then I thought about what you said about placing our intentions and even ourselves in the womb of Mary. My question is, can you help me flesh out this concept? If we place ourselves in our blessed mother's womb and our movements while we are there form our most individual identifying marks, could we be forming a kind of spiritual fingerprint? Yes! That's what I was going to say. There, apps. Wow. Okay, I'm getting a lot of new information here, and I'm and I'm processing it. So, uh, not that you can trust everything that you see on the internet, but I am going to trust that she did her research here and found reliable uh, information that this is for reals. Um, <laughs> for reals is for a line re- from yes, a movie sorry. that you quote a sorry, lot. Not, I, I, it's so this movie is so much in my psyche that I, <laughs> I think people know. Like it's just become part of my vocabulary. Anyway, that's a nacho line for reals. Um, wow. So our fingerprints. Let me get this straight. Our fingerprints are formed by the movements in our mother's womb, where we're. I'm like what? I'm trying to imagine what like you're 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 putting your fingers up against the inner lining of your mother's womb and it shapes your fingerprints. Am I getting this right? I can't tell you if you're getting it right. When you're in the womb, you are inside an amniotic sac, but that presses up against the right. lining of the womb. So yeah, I don't I don't know for sure. Okay, so there the, the the short answer is yes, there is some spiritual parallel. This is the very principle of theology of the body, that physical things reveal spiritual mysteries. Mm. So to every physical reality, there is a spiritual corollary. And you are you are absolutely right, Mary, to be recognizing that to whatever extent this is real, that our fingerprints are formed in our mother's womb by by obviously they're formed in our mother's womb but by this movement then yes the spiritual corollary is that in our being regenerated which is the very entrance into the kingdom right the biblical basis here for this idea of taking our lives taking our hearts taking our intentions to the womb of mary the biblical basis is jesus's conversation with nicodemus where he says, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you are regenerated, born anew, born again of water and the Spirit. Nicodemus says, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? Jesus does not say no. Rather, he raises the conversation to the supernatural level. Right? He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you have to understand the natural reality 
in order to understand the supernatural reality. The natural reality has a corollary in the supernatural order, the order of grace. We have the order of nature. We're all conceived naturally in our mother's wombs, and we are born of our mother's wombs. We must be born again. We must be regenerated in the order of grace. And just as our first parents are, you know, go the whole way back, the biblical names to our first parents, Adam and Eve, well, in the supernatural order, we are regenerated, we are born anew by the new Adam, Jesus Christ, and the new Eve, Mary, right? And their, their union here is of a supernatural order, the order of grace. This is a virginal reality, the, that grace perfects nature. And grace, the grace that perfects nature, the nature is the union of man and woman, Adam and Eve, the, the grace that perfects that, the union is consummated at the cross. When the new Adam says to the new Eve, woman, behold your son. The beloved disciple at the foot of the cross, who's a symbol of us all, he is the first to be regenerated from the order of grace, from the new Adam and the new Eve. So all of this, all of this is revealed through our creation as male and female and the call of the two to become one flesh. This is a great mystery, St. Paul says, and it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, the union of the first Adam and Eve in the order of nature refers to the union of the new Adam and the new Eve in the supernatural order of grace. So yes, we are born again from the womb of the new Eve. This happens in our baptism. The church has always understood that the baptismal font is the womb of the church and that Mary, the new Eve, is the embodiment of the church. So we are absolutely right to call Mary our mother. And in a supernatural sense, we are regenerated from her womb. So we place ourselves in Mary's womb to be formed into other Christ's. And absolutely, Mary, I love the point you're drawing out here, that this idea of the fingerprints which identify each of us uniquely, there's, there is a spiritual corollary here. No, no doubt that each of us have a unique regeneration in the womb of Mary. So awesome, awesome thoughts. I, I mean, I, I need to keep pondering it because I've never heard this thing about yeah. the fingerprints before. I'm so touched by everything you're sharing, Christopher. I kept having thoughts like, Oh, we could say, oh, I could say, and, and you kept saying the things that were coming into my heart. So there's a great bond in what you were sharing there. And I, I don't actually have anything to add to it. I have the sense of the, the deep healing gift it is to be, have just to have that image to help us to understand that we are united to Christ, that we are loved by his mother as her children like all that is a powerful powerful healing image and i i just thank the lord for giving that to us through nicodemus and for his story being in the scripture so powerful the only thing i just felt myself wanting to add here was i was thinking about this fingerprinting experience that mary had and realizing that there are many people who have their fingerprints are kind of connected to their sin. Mm, mm. 
people who are in prison or people who are in danger or, you know, who have maybe things they haven't reckoned with in their past that know their fingerprints link them to something deeply regretful. And I just felt inspired to pray for a healing of the sense of the fingerprint, like Mm. the, the sense that it doesn't just connect us to our sin, connects us to our redemption. To our deepest identity in Christ. Yeah. Which, which shines a light on this whole mystery of being born again, of being regenerated, that our relationships in this life go right back to the womb. Obviously, our first human relationship is with our mother. Mm. We spent nine months under her beating heart, mm-hmm. and we absorb, even right there in the womb, we absorb an inheritance from both our father and our mother, of brokenness, of, of fallen humanity. But this whole mystery of our redemption is that we can be redeemed, we can start anew. Those, those, that inheritance of sin can become an inheritance of, of grace, mm-hmm. of healing, of new life. Uh, it's not just words on a page, it's this whole idea of being born again. It's not just something you read about in the Bible. It's something that really happens in our lives as we enter into ever more deeply the grace of the sacraments. So I I just want to throw up a prayer, and I don't mean that in a casual sense, throw up a prayer. I mean, I, I want to open up my heart, your and with your heart, Wendy, here for all of our listeners that the grace of our baptisms would come to full flowering. Yes. Lord, we ask this. We, we know we are asking in union with your will here. And you promised where two or three are gathered together, there you are. And if we ask anything, if it be your will, you will grant it. I know, Lord, Wendy and I know that it is your will that the grace of our baptisms, of all the baptisms of all of our listeners, would come to full flowering, that we would rediscover our whole identity, our identity in wholeness, our identity as regenerated sons and daughters of the Father and of our Mother Mary. We ask, Lord, that this would come to full flowering as you desire it in each of our lives, and we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mary, for that question. That was that was deep. Mm. Our next question is from a listener named Josh. Hello, Josh. Josh asks, why use NFP and not just have sex without tracking the wife's cycle and let God decide whether he wants to create new life? Isn't that being more open to life? than tracking her cycle and having sex only during infertile periods when you can be almost 100% sure you won't conceive? And and how do couples know whether their reasons for postponing pregnancy by using NFP are strong enough or whether the problem is only a lack of trust in God that he will provide for each life he brings into this world, even if you may feel like you can't provide for another baby? Using NFP to avoid pregnancy just feels like using contraception and not being true to the marriage vows. Bless you, Josh. Thank you for this honest question. 
And for those who might be tuning in and may not know what NFP stands for, it's natural family planning. And natural family planning means coming to understand a woman's cycle when she's fertile and when she's infertile. And if you have, and this is part of the answer to the question, if you have, and only if you have, a just reason to be avoiding a child, should you be seeking to avoid a child by abstaining from intercourse during the fertile time of the cycle. Josh, I'm going to point you to my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, Mm -hmm. where I have a whole chapter, uh, it's probably the longest chapter in the book, on contraception, the church's teaching on contraception, and the difference between contraception and natural family planning. But right now, let me just point to a few things that you're, you're raising. And the first is, shouldn't we just trust God and His providence and, and not be trying to avoid children? Well, shouldn't we trust God and His providence? Let's just start there. Of course we mm. should trust God and His providence, always. And guess what? Part of God's providence for us is this thing called reason. God has given us reason. He has provided it to us. That's part of his providence, and he wants us to use it, right? And we can fall into an error here, which it seems you're leaning in this direction, Josh, and I'm not saying this in some kind of condemning way, but just to shine a light. I believe you're leaning in the direction of an error called providentialism, right? When something becomes an ism, typically when we use that suffix, Mm. it means something good has gone to an extreme and it's no longer good, right? Obviously, we trust in God's providence, but we don't put God to the test. Remember, Jesus and the temptation? Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus when Satan says, throw yourself from the temple, and it says in Scripture, the angels will catch you and you won't dash your foot against the stone. Is that the Scripture, dash your foot? Am I confusing Scriptures? Am I getting that right? That's correct. It's one of, okay, sorry. I'm I'm remembering the lyrics from that song, and I I couldn't remember if that's like actually out of the Scripture or just some line in the song. Anyway, anyway, back to my point. Um, Jesus responds by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? If Jesus had thrown himself off the building, would God have provided? Yes, but Jesus knows better to use his reason and not put his Father to the test. When you have, let's just paint a picture here, when you already have five or six mouths to feed and you're out of work, Reason tells you, (laughs) you have a good reason not to bring another child into this world, right? Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, if a child comes in in that circumstance, will the Lord provide? Yes, but don't put the Lord your God to the test. Use your reason. And reason shows us that there are times in life where a husband and a wife have a good reason, a just reason, to avoid bringing another child into the world. The question then becomes, what could a couple do to avoid bringing a child into the world that would not violate their wedding vows? 
because part of the wedding commitment itself, the very marital commitment itself, is we will receive children lovingly from God. And every time a husband and a wife have intercourse, they're meant to be renewing their wedding commitment. If they render the act sterile, they're turning the I do of their marital vow into an I do not in that instance, right? So what could a couple do if they have a serious reason to avoid a child? Let's just go with that scenario, that picture we painted, a couple who already has five or six children and the husband and or, and, and or wife are both out of work. Right? That's a good reason to avoid another conception. They could abstain from intercourse, right? There's nothing wrong with abstaining from intercourse. We do it all the time. In fact, Wendy, you and I are abstaining from intercourse in this very moment. Certainly. <laughs> right? Every married couple knows that love often demands abstinence. There are many, many, many occasions in married life where a husband and a wife might want to renew their wedding vows through intercourse, but they have a serious reason to abstain, and in fact, love demands they abstain, and if they can't abstain, their love is called into question. For example, maybe one of you is sick. You might want to renew your wedding vows through intercourse. Love demands you abstain. If you can't abstain, your love is called into question. Maybe it's after childbirth. Love demands abstinence. Uh, maybe you're recording a podcast like right now. Love demands abstinence. <laughs> Love, love demands abstinence, right? Um, I often joke, you know, maybe you're at the in-laws and there are thin walls. Love may very well demand abstinence. And maybe you have a serious reason to avoid a child. In this situation, love demands abstinence, right? Does this mean you have to abstain for the rest of your marriage? Well, who created a woman's cycle so that she's only fertile for a certain number of days in a given month. God. God does not intend that each and every act of intercourse result in a child. Married couples would have hundreds of children if that were the case, right? This is not God's plan. God has written right into the cycle of a woman times of natural fertility and times of natural infertility. There is nothing wrong with using our reason to understand when a woman is fertile and when she's infertile, and there's nothing wrong with abstaining when she's fertile, if you have a good reason to do so. And there's nothing wrong with coming together when she's naturally infertile. This is the very principle of natural family planning. Contraception is something altogether different. Contraception engages in an act of intercourse, but then through an act of the will of the couple themselves, they render that act sterile, right? Natural family planning is not a natural form of contraception. It is not contraception at all. Because never, when couples practice natural family planning with the right mentality, with the right attitude, with the right disposition, they don't even hear, if they have the right attitude, have what could be called a contraceptive mentality. And I think this is what you're getting at, Josh. And I will affirm, it is possible to engage in or to practice natural family planning, but with a kind of contraceptive mentality. And you're right, that would be wrong. But that does not mean that because some people practice natural family planning with a contraceptive mentality, that practicing natural family planning in and of itself is wrong. 
right? Mm-hmm. Never, and here's the point I wanted to make, and I'm looping back around to, to just dot my I's and cross my T's here. Never does a couple using natural family planning properly, never do they render their acts of intercourse sterile. Never. This is why natural family planning is not a form of contraception. It is not contraception at all. And I know there are people out there, oh, come on, they're saying, you know, what's the big difference between rendering the act sterile yourself and just waiting till your wife is naturally infertile? To which I respond, okay, what's the big difference between killing grandma yourself and just waiting till she dies naturally? The end result's the same thing, right? Dead grandma. Yeah, but one is a serious sin called murder, and in the other, there's no sin involved whatsoever because grandma's death is an act of God. I invite everybody to think on this long and hard. If you can understand the difference between natural death and euthanasia, you can understand the difference between natural family planning and contraception. It's the same difference. In one, God remains God, and in the other, we take the powers of life into our own hands and we make ourselves like God. Again, Josh, I say much more in my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. I urge you to to read it. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, uh, but I'm going to leave it at that for now. Wendy, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I'm remembering a time when um, a person you met was who had had a deep conversion from the cultural approach to sexuality, uh, a young man, um, you know, who had had a, a past of living out the fast food gospel, so to speak, and really came to his faith. He was still unmarried. And he said to you, oh, well, what is this NFP thing? When you're married, just have kids. And I remember you're, we were in the midst of, uh, you know, young children at the time. And, and I was blessed by your response to him. He, you said, um, well, you'll use NFP because you love your wife. Mm, mm. <laughs> I remember being touched that that was like, that's the heart of it, that, that our union is, is our expression of love and self-gift, but abstinence is also an expression of love yes, and yes. self-gift at times in a marriage. And I think sometimes there are so many different factors that can be underneath this kind of question. And, you know, one can be a judgmentalism toward other people, like you think you know their reasons and that they're wrong and they should be, you know, somehow taken to task for that, their reasons for avoiding pregnancy, I should say. Another thing that can be underneath it is like just threatened by the thought of abstinence and yes. not wanting to admit that that's threatening. So we'll, we'll put the whole objection on something else so we don't have to look at that, the challenge that that is. I do also want to say that we are not out to um, attack people who are able to live their whole married life without finding a need to ever abstain, you know, other than specific health related to you know, the time after a childbirth or something, you know, we have no beef with people living that. That is the natural state of marriage. You know, you come together and your coming together brings children into the world. 
It's just that typically you do find yourself in circumstances where you need to avoid a pregnancy. And plenty of couples who never learn NFP simply have longer times of abstinence in their marriage because of that reality. That's not also wrong. So like there's a big open space here that we need to have open hearts, open, just openness to the fact that we're all seeking and on a journey and that that the church has seen the need for couples to avoid pregnancy at time and responded in the affirmative that, yes, you can, when you know you are infertile, you can come together as married couple and experience the blessing that that is to your relationship and not be not open to life. You, your, your whole, um, Action in that union is open to life in that you're not closed, as you said in talking about the difference with contraception. Right, and that's probably a better way to put it, uh, that the openness to life means, or it was more clearly understood when we realize we're not closing ourselves to right. life. And and I want to build on what you just said there, Wendy, that, you know, I, I get a window into a lot of marriages because people share their their hearts with me in my travels and teaching courses and and I can think of a number of marriages where the wife came to me saying you know we're on child number 7 or 8 because my husband cannot abstain and I've been begging him to gain mastery of his desires for years and he just won't do it and and that's a real problem Um, the goal here of married love uh, is to be a gift to the other. And if you can't say no, your yes means nothing. And this could be masked by being virtuous. Oh, look at that good Catholic couple. They have eight children. Um, and, And of course God is there. Of course God's working through all of it. But but that can also mask the fact that there's lack of self-mastery here, and that is not love. Uh, I say to any married couple, even if you don't have a serious reason to be avoiding children, work times of abstinence into your life, because extended abstinence will show you whether or not you are free. If you can't say no, your yes means nothing. Uh, obviously, if you don't need to avoid pregnancy, there's no reason for your times of abstinence to be during the fertile time. So you may not even need to track your cycles to know when you're fertile or infertile. But do spend times in your married life where you are practicing abstinence to demonstrate and to foster and build up the virtue of self-mastery. Only he or she who is in possession of him or herself can be truly a gift in, in the marital embrace. Uh, and, and abstinence is kind of a, the ability to abstain is the test of one's self-mastery. So here, when we're talking about natural family planning, if it's just applied as a technique, uh, then yeah, you can fall into a kind of contraceptive mentality, as we've been saying. But when it's practiced as a virtue, right, the virtue of self-mastery, 
and one is motivated by proper love for one's spouse and his or her well-being and the well-being of your whole family, that's what the church is calling us to, virtue. And in fact, as we've been saying all along, not practicing that virtue could indeed demonstrate the lack of virtue, and that could be masked as virtue, and that's a problem. Mm. So, Josh, brother, these are honest questions coming from your heart very clearly. You are seeker. Keep seeking. I hope what we've shared with you has, has shown a light uh, into your heart here. And again, please, please do read that book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. I think you will find it very illuminating. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. As a young woman, I sometimes find myself wishing my body was different, and I feel what God has given me is not enough. Mm. I know the body God has given me is a gift, but I don't always feel that way. Does Theology of the Body have any help to offer? Yes, dear sister. Yes, 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 yes. Please, please take up a deeper study of what John Paul II has given us, and I think it will lead you into a deep appreciation, not just of the body, but of your body. Mm. And what I sense as, as I'm hearing Wendy read your question is that you, like all of us, are feeling the battle that we are all in. We have to realize this. We are in an all-out war over the meaning of our bodies, and we live in a culture that is in the grips of the enemy, and the enemy's goal is to blind us to the meaning of our bodies. The enemy's goal is to get us to reject our bodies and even hate our bodies as much as he does. Why does the enemy, and the enemy we're talking about here is the fallen angel Lucifer, why does the enemy hate our bodies? We read in Scripture that Lucifer fell out of envy. What is Lucifer envious of? What do we have that Lucifer doesn't have? Lucifer's an angel. Guess what Lucifer doesn't have? A body. A body. What do we get to do with our bodies? Why do we have bodies? St. Paul says, the body is meant for the Lord, mm. and then even more boldly, he says, and the Lord is meant for the body. Mm. The incarnation is not an afterthought in the mind of God. The incarnation is not plan B in the mind of God. God from all eternity willed that the second person of the Trinity would take on flesh. This is, this is the ultimate purpose of a woman's womb, is to give flesh to the second person of the Trinity. Uh, dear sisters, ponder that. That is the ultimate meaning of your body to give flesh to God. This is why Satan's enmity, his hatred, is aimed in a very particular way at woman and her ability to bear offspring. It's right there in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, 15, I believe, 15 or 16. It's, it's, yeah, it's right there. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. That's the Lord speaking to Satan, right? The enmity that Satan has is aimed at the woman and her ability to bear offspring. Why? Because it is woman's ability to bear offspring that will give flesh to the second person of the Trinity. And Lucifer, the brightest angel in all of God's creation of angels, Lucifer's the brightest one. And yet, the second person of the Trinity did not, did not enter his creation in the angelic realm. He entered his creation in the human realm. And he raises humanity, body and soul, he raises humanity higher than the angels. Guess who didn't like that? And the angels were created to serve us. Guess who didn't like that? I will not serve is Lucifer's dictum, right? Lucifer and all his fallen angels hate, hate, hate our bodies because our bodies get raised in the final reality higher than the angels. And so Lucifer wants us to hate our bodies also. That's what envy is. It's a little different than jealousy. Jealousy says, I wish I had what you have, but envy says, I hate that you have it, and I want you to hate that you have it also. Body hatred is so prevalent in our world today. Body rejection is so prevalent in our world today because we are all raised in this world. We are under the influence of the, this enemy who hates our bodies and wants us to hate our bodies. So we have to know we are in a war here, and we also have to know this war has already been won because Mary said yes, and the second person of the Trinity did take flesh, and he absorbed in his body all of the hatred of the body unleashed by hell. That's what the crucifixion is. It is Christ absorbing in his body all the hatred of hell aimed at the body. And he comes out the other side with a glorified body. You cannot win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine, right? This is what's going on. This is, you know, that's George Lucas's, you know, take on this basic principle of the universe in the fight between good and evil, that the good wins. When it seems that evil is winning, God uses the very strike and blow of the enemy to bring about the greatest victory. So, dear sister, the enemy has been after your heart here to get you to reject your body as much as he rejects your body. But you can enter into this victory, and the Lord already knows that in the very blows against your sense of the goodness of your own body, the Lord already has a plan to turn those blows into the most glorious victory. And you, by a life of prayer, by a life of exposing your hearts, your heart and its wounds and those lies, and here's just a suggestion, maybe you could go back into your memories where, where did these ideas about your body begin? And maybe you don't even know. But the Lord can take you on a journey into those places in your heart where those lies first took root, and He can uproot those lies, and He can speak truth into your heart, and He can turn 
those wounds into glorified wounds, right? Jesus still has his wounds. All that unleashing of hell's hatred of his body scarred his body, but now those wounds, those scars shine with glory. Ours can too. This is the destiny. This is the this is the direction that the Christian life goes in. Wendy, what are your thoughts? I think we all at different times and in different ways experience these kinds of wishes. You know, we, you're shorter than all our sons and I'm shorter than our daughters. Have we always felt great about our lack of stature? <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't we admire that height and impressive, I don't know, size of sure. some other people or other aspects of our own bodies. And I, I mean, there's there can be different levels of wishing our bodies are different, but I think it's good to be aware that it's a place of vulnerability that, that the evil one can kind of let lies take root in us and, and to have an, that renewing of the mind that's ongoing in our lives where we we notice, we have that gift of the Spirit to, to recognize whether what we're entertaining and kind of unconsciously, you know, believing is truth or not. Um, so I, I think all of this, this woman's question is something that probably every listener can relate yes. to and on different levels and in, um, you know, increasing or less, you know, significant ways at different times in our lives. Um, two things that I just want to say. One is that your quote from Scripture, uh, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord is meant for the body. I just was recognizing how that could be a prayer, especially if we, instead of the, we said my. Mm, Yeah. My body is meant for the Lord. The Lord is meant for my body. Like what a beautiful truth to repeat when we are struggling with, with the lies against our bodies. And and if we take that even deeper, can the Lord show us unique ways that that brings us peace and joy in knowing that truth, um, each uniquely for our own lives? So so that was something that just that prayer. And the other thing I was thinking of was a recent uh, video on our YouTube channel uh, where you were oh, speaking yes. with Sister Maria Gemma, who, um, you know, that it was her story in a particular way with Theology of the Body that I think could be a blessing. Yes, please, everybody, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes. Please watch my conversation with Sister Maria Gemma. She has dwarfism. She's a little person, mm-hmm. and I've known her for 10 years, and we had a beautiful conversation on the YouTube channel just recently, and she shares very vulnerably, very openly her struggles in coming to love herself in her in her littleness and you know we use that term littleness in a spiritual sense the little way of saint therese for example but she's had to embrace this really and truly uh, in a bodily sense because she is a little person she and her family have have dwarfism and just you'll love the light on her face mm. This is a woman who has wrestled like few ever pe- few people have ever needed to wrestle with body image and a constant taunt of insults and just people staring at her throughout her life and how she's come to not and she at her own admission not perfectly it's a journey it's an ongoing journey for her as it is for all of us 
but she can witness authentically to knowing the encounter with the love of Jesus Christ for her as she is in her body. And you, I think you'll really benefit from watching. I'm so glad you thought of that, Wendy. Mm. I hope you have benefited from our episode today. If you have, please share this episode with people who you believe could also benefit. Keep the questions coming. We can't have this podcast if we don't receive questions from our listeners. So thank you so much for sending them. And patrons, remember to submit your question on the patron page of your membership so that you'll have a higher possibility of having us answer your question. Until next time, may you know it in your bones that you are lovable and you are a gift. Mm, Become what you are. is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.